welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Gianna. And I'm Bianca. <laughs> Hello, sister. Beautiful sister. <laughs> it's kind of wild that we are halfway through the month of October. This weekend, I actually, I watched three scary movies in one day. You did? I did. And I, I need to tell everyone what a huge accomplishment that is for me. Yeah, you and I don't do scary movies very well. I know. But I did. I watched Us, the second Jordan Peele horror movie. I watched The Lighthouse with Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, (laughs) which I guess isn't so much a a horror movie. I had a big discussion about it over the weekend. Oh, my gosh. Um, That's so funny. You watched it on Amazon Prime, didn't you? I did, yeah. Yeah, because it came up on my fire stick and... William Defoe's voice that he has like oh yeah it's very funny yeah and then I also watched the original 1984 Nightmare on Elm Street which was fun um because I have seen all like the original Halloween movies and I I definitely like appreciate the horror genre and classic horror films but scary movies they are hard for me to watch they're also hard for me to watch but i will say that apt graphic designer and co-host of whooper and nebula's nerdtastic galaxy she is always really surprised that i don't do horror so well mm-hmm. because she knows how artistic horror movies are which mm-hmm. she's absolutely right but she has turned me on to some really good movies because Phoebe is always wanting to watch like stupid scary movies that I just can't handle. Like I watch the freaking human centipede because I date this boy. Ooh. It's so dumb. <laughs> and I understand nasty. that's like a, just a stupid horror movie that everyone makes fun of and you yeah, know, whatever. But I could have lived without seeing that. Right. Um, but Sid has turned me on to some really cool things. So anytime I ever want to watch like a scary movie, she tells me what to watch. And yeah. Um, And I've seen Us and Get Out, and I definitely appreciate those films. One movie that she had me watch that isn't really a a horror movie or scary movie, it's just suspenseful, um, is Mother with Jennifer Lawrence, because there's so much loaded uh, metaphors in there about uh, religion. Mm -hmm. That one's really good. Yeah. Midsommar is awesome. I don't know if you watched that one yet. The A24 film. Yeah, so is the mm-hmm. lighthouse. The lighthouse is also a twenty four, but I I I preferred Midsummer mm-hmm. much much more than the lighthouse. Anything that's a twenty four, I I really like them except for Uncut Gems. Man, did you watch that? No, I yeah, haven't seen that. I get it. Like Adam Sandler was like really great in it, and it is nothing about his acting. But that mm-hmm. was just a dumbass movie, in my opinion. Mm. There's a new Adam Sandler Halloween movie on Netflix that <laughs> yeah. I that I kind of want to watch. It looks it looks funny. I c- I could go with some nice mm-hmm. new Halloween movies too. Speaking of, I I also was able to watch Hocus Pocus this weekend. Oh man, you already Welcome watched it. October. Yes, I was gonna send you a Snapchat because last week we made the dust thou comprehend <laughs> joke on the show, but it was it was fun. I was going to ask you, now that we're halfway through October, do you have Halloween plans or are you just going to eat candy and watch Hocus Pocus? <laughs> <laughs> probably the latter, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think going now is probably a hard pass for me. I get to plan some like, safe and fun and appropriate festivities at the end of the month for work, which I'm looking forward to, but... Other than that, Theban and I might see if there's anything we can do here. For instance, I think if the drive-in is still open, if it's showing like a classic scary movie, that mm-hmm. would be nice. I always look forward to going to a Rocky Horror Picture Show screening, yeah. one that's interactive. But Bianca, as you know, and as we've discussed in regards to COVID, things in Oklahoma are just different than they are where you are right now. Yeah, I um, feel I feel as though right now though it's actually kind of <laughs> everywhere is kind of um, and it is everywhere you know a hot mess. has its own 
thing and uh, you know everyone is still suffering and is dealing with this pandemic but right now we're on the high side of the orange level here mm-hmm. and you know we've only been in yellow for a short while but it feels like as of really lately uh mm. cases are continuing to go back up here they reported that the other day in Chelsea, Oklahoma, which is a small town here, but their entire police department <laughs> tested positive for COVID. Oh, God. So, you know, I, I'm just feeling the continual frustration in the way we are dealing with this pandemic here. So Halloween here is soon, and we know how many of the art pop tarts live for the scary and haunted season. So I'm just looking forward to bringing these ideas and aesthetics to life through the pod, you know, where we can all participate in a conversation together, but also safely. I love that. I love that. Um, if any of the art pop tarts have recommendations for some Halloween films or activities, or if you guys are doing anything, artistic for Halloween, let us know because that would be fun to see. I would love to see that. So in some art news, last week we reported, can we call ourselves reporters now, Gianna? Sure. Is this in fact journalism? (laughs) Hard hitting tea. (laughs) Have you seen those TikToks where (laughs) someone's best friend will tell them a secret and then they come and sit down. They're like, tonight on CBS 9 live news. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, that's us basically, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we reported last episode on the October Museum boycott and Instagram accounts like A Better Guggenheim calling for action against a discriminatory museum system and work environment. Well, this week, we found out that the independent investigation looking into racial prejudice against the black female curator, Shadria Labouvier, found no evidence of such harassment. Labouvier is an art historian who was the first black curator of an exhibition at the Guggenheim Museum. She is an expert on Jean-Michel Basquiat, who she curated the 2019 show on the late artist at the Guggenheim. The museum also announced that Nancy Spector, the artistic director and chief curator, will be leaving to, quote, pursue other curatorial endeavors and to finish her doctoral dissertation. She has spent 34 years at the Guggenheim and has been publicly criticized by Le Bouvier. The investigation was prompted by criticism from employees who sent a letter to management in June describing an inadequate work environment that enables racism, white supremacy, and other discriminatory practices. And this is clearly something that's continuing amongst those at the museum as we see, you know, various described accounts submitted to the A Better Guggenheim account. So it's unclear if Spectre was forced out or left on her own, but let's hope someone is listening to actually better the institution and not just do this for the sake of face, you know. Very interesting development in this boycott. This is also just a side note about the Guggenheim. I know that they have had some fantastic exhibitions there, but man, every time I've been there, I've just kind of left being like cool well i think in recent years it was really the hilma off Klimt show mm-hmm. that sparked a ton of news for the guggenheim in a, in a while mm-hmm. yeah well as it is mid-october and we are nearing the end of national hispanic heritage month which is actually september 15th through october 15th i wanted to share that i was listening to a fantastic episode of the Hysteria podcast from Crooked Media about two weeks ago now, where Aaron Ryan and Alyssa Mastromonaco had an amazing conversation with actress and activist America Ferreira. They talked about the She Se Puede organization and why politicians should be paying attention to the Latinx community year round. And America was just 
incredibly informative and gave such revealing and personal stories about how Latina women have the power to change the face of this country. So I just really wanted to highlight that episode. Definitely take a listen and obviously we will link it for you all in our resources. Love it. So keeping in line with both the Halloween season and the voices of the Latinx community, today's art pop talk is about some art historical hauntology, as well as Cuban-American artist Ana Mandieta and Mexican-Canadian artist Rafael Lozano Hemmer. I think we may have briefly mentioned your hauntology class in previous episodes, Bianca, but do you want to talk a little bit about that and give us all an introduction to how something like hauntology plays into a discipline like art history? Absolutely. I'm so excited to get into some hauntology. <laughs> so the class I took in grad school was called Haunted Images, and it was taught by the most amazing professor, Dr. Christina Gonzalez. Truly. Oh my gosh, queen. The class really challenged us to use both the theoretical and physical aspects of the art historical field. So I definitely believe in ghosts. Now, to that extent, we don't have to really get into that in this episode. But while the class did look at ghosts, it also looked at this other component like trauma, geography, and art to show us that our histories and our visual cultures are haunted. It's not just something that permeates kind of the pop culture realm. Now, we covered a ton of haunted theories, which I am happy to share with you if you're interested. But as always, for the sake of time, I'm going to do my best to offer a quick background on hauntology before we look at some art. Although the word hauntology appears little in his book, this concept is first really theorized in Jacques Derrida's Spectres of Marx from 1993. Here, Derrida employs the concept of ghosts to elaborate on larger theories of deconstruction and post-structuralism, wherein the ambiguous and non-binary state of ghosts actually destabilizes our dichotomous way of thinking, as well as many of our social systems. Scholar Jeffrey Weinstock writes that Derrida's ghosts, quote, suggest the complex relationship between the constitution of individual subjectivity and the larger social collective. Okay, so that's a lot of big theory to process via podcast. So let's try to think about how ontology has evolved from that origin and how some academics study kind of what is thought of as the unstudiable. Avery Gordon is an expert in the field who argues in the book Ghostly Matters that haunting is, quote, one way in which abusive systems of power make themselves known and their impacts felt in everyday life, end quote. Where other authors have described haunting as subjective and have provided a looser interpretation of ghosts based on an individual's desire to interact with them. Gordon believes that ghosts make themselves known in the presence of unresolved and repressed issues. Therefore, for Gordon, ghosts are demanding entities. They call for action in hopes of resting once a just reconciliation is brought to fruition. So time is an important element for Gordon and her ghosts, as she argues that, quote, Haunting alters the experience of being in linear time. Although ghosts may originate from our past histories, our traumas, memories, places, etc., they are still very much living in the present with us, calling upon us to make social change. This haunted association to activism is what we are going to be talking about a little bit more with our artists like Ana Mendieta and Rafael Lozano Hemmer a little bit later on. But to think about ghosts in maybe a more traditional lens or that popular kind of culture way they appear often, 
I want to quote authors Julian Holloway and James Neal, where they offer us a practical guide to those interested in the geography of haunting and spectrality. They argue that those interested in the spectral to become aware of ghosts, a specific intellectual lens is required which allows us to then see the ghosts. These authors provide this intellectual framework by means of two manifestations. So they argue that ghost stories and spiritualist seances are those two ways that we can interact with ghosts. Holloway and Neil are quick to note that there is an inevitable concern that comes with studying ghosts, right? So the elusive and questionable state in which ghosts exist makes them, in fact, hard to study. As the existence of ghosts is often a concept difficult to grasp and not everybody quote-unquote believes in ghosts, let alone to prove that in scholarship, the authors suggest ways in which we might be able to engage with ghosts as individuals without having to prove their authenticity. So, I know that was a lot. But in Mm -hmm. trying to prove that ghosts exist let's start looking at the beginnings of ghostly images and begin to integrate some art history into that. How have we continually tried to provide and prove the actualization of ghosts? So Gianna, take it away. Mm, Thanks, babe. The concepts of spirits or spirituality were first presented visually in cultural or sacred objects, in architectural temples or churches that were designed to either house the presence of a spirit or a deity, or, for example, the use of purposeful light manipulation to suggest the metaphorical presence of gods. And then we have the evolution of religious or spiritual iconography open up cross-culturally through time where we then see spiritual representation in art through painting or sculpture. But fast forwarding to the invention of the camera in the early 1800s, this is where the exploration of haunted imagery began to take off. When through photo manipulation and a bit of trickery, we (laughs) thought we were seeing the actual or real presence of a spirit or more specifically a departed loved one. This is known as spirit photography, where people called spirit photographers would profit off their pranks of sorts, Mm -hmm. which was having access to this technology and privatizing knowledge about the use of photo manipulation. So it's time for some ghost stories because (laughs) we are going to look into the past at the most well-known and first spirit photographer, William Mumler, whose story is so interesting as he is linked to other historical or political figures that we have heard of, starting with P.T. Barnum, who is the American showman that we all now know of. Is he the greatest showman? Mm, Not really, but... (laughs) This is the greatest showman. It's more like, oh... That's what he actually did. Oh, that movie wasn't (laughs) realistic. Oh. (laughs) Of course, we all know P.T. Barnum, known for putting on, quote, celebrated hoaxes, but who's also linked to Mumler's downfall. So Mumler took a photo of Barnum, and the image he used to make the spirit image was a photo of the recently assassinated Abraham Lincoln, (laughs) leading people to ask, um... Is that for real? Because why is Abe hanging out with P.T. Barnum? You know what I mean? Interesting. So in 1869, Barnum, ironically a trickster himself, was called to testify against Mumler as an expert on humbuggery, (laughs) Um, using his own picture with Abe as evidence, but also noting that it was interesting, all the images of the departed, Uh, dressed in particularly modern clothing, leading to some suspicions. I love that word humbuggery. Humbuggery. I think Mm. I want to start using that. Yeah, I think we think we must. Mumler was not alone in his practice, as we know that photo manipulation has basically been happening since the inception of the camera, but it wasn't accepted or understood for many years after. 
Many thought that photography should be used for purely documentation or realistic purposes. Only until the early 1900s do we see pictorialism begin to grow, which is the apparent use of photo manipulation to make the image look more painterly and be accepted by the public as art. And at the forefront of pictorialism, we have artists and photographer like Alfred Stieglitz. So techniques that Mumler used are still used today, such as multiple exposure or combination printing. And this is what would make his photographic imitations of spirits come to life. So how did this whole operation work? He sold these photographs for about five to ten bucks, which, you know, wasn't an entirely cheap price at the time. I was about to say, that seems rather expensive. I thought I was expecting to be like ten cents or something like that. mm -mm, No, Mumler was like making bank, let me tell you. Ten dollars. Mm-hmm. What really set him up into what was a wealthy market was actually the Civil War in the 1860s, where Mumler and others were able to continuously profit off of the grieving family members of fallen soldiers. The war also made it especially easy to capture the deceased in the spirit photos, as it became more likely that the client had a portable portrait photo of their loved one taken before they went off to war. Mm -hmm. Uh, These little photos resembled something of the same size and thickness as a playing card. So Mumler could use them to make these ghosts in the photographic manipulation process. In an article I found by The Atlantic, it also states, he used references of famous figures, as in the case of Barnum's Lincoln portrait, to create the illusion of communion with the notable. And he used images of the non-famous to create the illusion of disembodied intimacy. So this was both smart but also cruel at the same time. What Mumbler was taking advantage of the was the fading memory of a client and someone who could share and talk about their loved one, and he could convince a person who already wanted to be convinced because they missed the sight of their beloved so much. So the psychology of this kind of trickery is very interesting as well. Mumbler was put on trial, not necessarily for the images he made, but the claims he made about them. Mm. And he might have also been skeezy and broke into people's homes to steal their photos of the departed (laughs) as well. (laughs) But basically acting and giving the appearance that he was some kind of medium, he Mm -hmm. would further embellish his operation by telling the clients, while the human eye couldn't see their spirit, the camera could. Mm -hmm. And they believed him. And this is also partially because of all the trauma and loss happening from the war, but also because the mid-19th century coincided with the rise of spiritualism, the religious movement that posited, among other things, the possibility that a soul could exist without a body to contain it. Mm -hmm. So the timing of it all really worked out for Mumbler. (laughs) That is quite convenient. (laughs) I'd like to point out, I also wrote down another Hocus Pocus quote. Um, Just lucky, I guess. (laughs) Just lucky, I guess. <laughs> uh, from the article, they asked the perspective of a media historian, Jeffrey Sconce, who argues technologies like the telegraph and like the camera as well, gave cultural aid to the spiritualist movement by effectively separating messages from the bodies of their senders. Images were disentangled from their subjects. Information was disentangled from its sources. Ghosts were, in a way, everywhere. Mumler was not convicted of any crimes at his original trial simply because there was no evidence, (laughs) which I, I don't get at all. Because whatever, I think we can toss it up to the fact that there just wasn't uh, an apparent education about this technology at the time. Right. Also, this cracks me up because part of me thinks this is like the oldest story in the book. You know, you have knowledge of medicine or technology and people automatically think you're a witch. She's (laughs) a witch. She's a witch. (laughs) You know, so Mumbler's career dissipated over time. uh, But as history continues and other wars progress, spirit photography developed in other ways as well um, Mm -hmm. through World War I and the Civil War, so on and so forth. 
in my class, we talked about the beginnings of photography. I've also, you know, taken classes on photography as well. But it's super fascinating to think about the relationship between photography and spirituality, but also the idea that these early photographs are taken to to be truthful. And I think that's something we also see with Civil War photographs is like those are strategically staged by the photographers even though they're not necessarily engaging in photo manipulation just because there's a photo taken from the mid 1800s doesn't mean that what we're seeing is truthful so photography has never been a truthful medium right Right. exactly I also wanted to highlight that in thinking about spiritualism, the role of the medium is that kind of central facet to the movement and their practices. But interestingly, this role was one of the few in Western cultures that was often occupied by women and was one of the first movements to give women a leading role in American religious history. According to Anne Browd, who is a scholar on women in religion, spiritualism made great contributions to the crusade for women's rights in the role of the medium. So she argues that, quote, while reformers talked about women's autonomy, membership cast women in a central public role and was a role that encouraged women to take charge of their own lives reinforcing the application of individual sovereignty for women so it's really cool to think about how (laughs) kind of problematic the documentation of spiritualism is within spirit photography because of that disingenuous photo manipulation but this was a way that women were simply able to to take charge of their own lives Mm, yeah that's so interesting (laughs) With that, I think we are going to take a little break, and when we return, we will be looking at artists Ana Mendieta and Rafael Lozano Hemmer. everybody i don't know about you but i say i'm ready to talk about some more haunted images <laughs> well you're in luxus because i'm ready to talk about one of my favorite artists anna mendieta a lot of this research that i'm going to share with you guys on mendieta was conducted for my final paper in this hauntology class in which I explored art history's relationship to the spectral and specifically a feminist art history's haunted lineage. So I argued that there's a type of activist ghost that is functioning within the art world by example of the late artist Anna Mendieta, where she and her work is continuing to inspire many activist outpourings and is very much haunting our understanding of current art histories. Ana Mendieta was a Cuban-born artist who worked in a variety of mediums, including performance, sculpture, earth art, photography, and film. She was born on November 18, 1948 in Havana to an aristocratic family. Her family were originally supporters of Fidel Castro, but when rumors of his communist tendencies were known, Ana's father broke with Castro and became involved with counter-revolutionary forces. As political unrest was on the rise, at age 12, Ana and her older sister were sent to the United States by their parents to live in Dubuque, Iowa, of all places. Ana began to study painting at the University of Iowa in 1969, She received her Bachelor of Arts degree, and in 72, she received a master's degree in painting. 
While at University of Iowa, Mandiera enrolled in the university's progressive MFA Intermedia program, which sounds super cool. In this program, she learned about the expanding and trending new ways of art making and drew inspiration from artists such as Linda Banglis, Bruce Nauman, Robert Smithson, and Carolee Schneeman. <laughs> Throwback to what, Never like episode forget. two? <laughs> Never forget. As well as different Fluxus works and artists. So a lot of these people are, are very big performance artists. These progressive means of art making allowed Mandietta to develop her own distinct style, and she quickly developed this very prolific practice in which her body, the earth, and other organic materials such as blood, fire, feathers, and wood served as the subject of photographs, slides, films, videos, and different performances for the artist. During her time as a graduate student, Mendieta's ways of making art developed to express some consistently feminist themes. She began using blood as a medium, which visually communicated, obviously, feminist concerns, such as violence against women. Mendieta moved to New York, where an interest in feminist earth art continued to shape her work. In 78, she joined the Artist-in-Residence Gallery in New York, but it was unfortunately at the AIR Gallery that Mendieta met her future husband, who was her killer. Carl Andre is an American artist and was the husband of Anna Mendieta for just eight months. The two met at the AIR Gallery, where Andre was serving on a panel titled how has women's art practices affected male artists' social attitudes? Dear God. Isn't that a lovely panel? Wouldn't you love to go to a, a panel with a lot of male artists talking about how women are impacting them? That's great. Mm-hmm. No, I'd rather stick my head in a microwave. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> On September 8th, 1985... Anna Mandietta died from a fall from the 34th floor of her apartment building in Greenwich Village. She fell 33 stories, landing on the roof of a deli. Just prior to her death, neighbors had heard the couple arguing. There were no eyewitnesses to the event, but in the recording of the 911 call made by Andre, he said... My wife is an artist, and I am an artist, and we had a quarrel about the fact that I was more um, exposed to the public than she was. And she went to the bedroom, and I went after her, and she went out the window. Andre was arrested after the event, and in 1988, he was tried. Despite evidence from a doorman who had heard a woman screaming, no, 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 and the disarray of their apartment bedroom from which Mandietta fell, and the fresh scratches on Andre's nose and forearm, and the different stories he gave to the 911 and the police, Andre was acquitted of Mandietta's murder. Mandietta was 36 years old and had produced over 200 works. Some works that I find are particularly ghostly from Mendieta are her silhouettes created from 1973 to 1980. Mendieta created these works in a variety of environments in different places that she lived and visited throughout this period, though the majority of them were actually conducted in Iowa and Mexico. This series was created with the artist using her own body either her actual naked body or a mold of it, using her body together with elemental materials such as earth, water, blood, and fire, Mandiera created what she called earth body sculptures. The first silhouette was made when she was in graduate school and visited Mexico. She laid in this gravesite naked and placed flowers all around her and on her body so that she was almost completely covered by earthly elements. Of this piece, Mendieta said, quote, 
the analogy was that I was covered by time and history. As time went on, her silhouettes appear to become more aggressive, as she frequently used blood and fire to create them. Many of her following silhouettes also employed plywood mold on her body rather than her physical body itself, or at least um, the physical body is not captured as often in the later photographs of the series. So when using the mold, the imprint revealed the shape of kind of a general human form, but not herself in detail. After Carl Andre was acquitted of the charges, feminists and women artists were outraged. In 2010, a symposium was held at NYU to commemorate the 25th anniversary of her death. This conference was titled, Where is Ana Mandieta? Donde esta Ana Mandieta? It was held on the closing night of an exhibition at the university titled, Where is Ana Mandieta? 25 Years Later, and accompanied the premiere of a great documentary called Bloodwork, The Ana Mandieta Story. Donde esta Ana Mandieta has since become an international movement, a call to action. Protests take place all over the world in hopes of finding justice for the murdered artist. In May of 2014, the feminist performance collective called the No Wave Performance Task Force held a demonstration outside of the Dia Art Foundation in Chelsea, New York, where a show of Carl Andre's work was newly opened. A long ream of white paper was unrolled in front of the gallery doors on which I wish Ana Mandieta was still alive was written. Chicken blood and entrails also accompanied the paper, leaving bloody markings reminiscent of Mandieta's work as well as her tragic fall. In 2016, protesters invading the opening of the Tate Modern in London, where the museum had installed works by Carl Andre, but actually left their acquisitions by Mendieta in storage. At this demonstration, protesters actually covered a work by Andre draping a basically a piece of paper, like a banner, over the work that read, Carl Andre killed Anna Mendieta. For me, looking at both Anna's work in relation to the protests that emerge because of her death, this for me is what I believe Avery Gordon is thinking about in terms of those ghostly calls to action. These feminist activisms are enacted because a social injustice has not been resolved. And as Gordon argues, haunting is the acknowledgement of an abusive system. And the world of art and art history is very much a field where that system is severely flawed. So obviously, if you're interested, I would love to chat more with you about Mendieta, hauntology, and some more ghost theory. This paper was super fun to write um, for the sake of everyone's listening capabilities. I'm going to cut it off there and let Gianna (laughs) talk about another cool artist. Yeah, I mean, this is like a my favorite murder turned art history. So, man, it's intense. But I think also this is part of the reason why we've talked about before, not only just studying the work, but also the exhibitions in Mm -hmm. time. And I think it's also highly ironic that perhaps I got into this disagreement because Andre was, you know, quote, exposed to the public more, was more popular than she was. Mm -hmm. And now due to her murder his work got all the attention it deserved by covering it mm-hmm. and um, making it into something new in activism for, yeah. for for to find her justice, you know. And I will say, I do know that MoMA had, last time I was there, had quite a bit of Mendieta's works on display, which I they, was so happy to see. They did. They had those photographic portraits of her mm-hmm. pressing her face against glass to yes. manipulate her own image. Um, she's an absolutely amazing artist. Mm-hmm. If you've ever taken an art history class starting since, you know, art since 1960s, she's, mm-hmm. you know, at the forefront of studying all those other feminist artists as well. So 
The next and last artist on today's list is Rafael Lozano Hemmer, a contemporary Canadian-Mexican artist known for his interactive installations that fuse architecture and performance art together. Using technological materials, including heart rate sensors, audio speakers, LED lights, and robotics, Lozano Hemmer creates immersive environments for the viewer, as seen in his Pulse Room of 2006. So similar to the development of photography, I want to quote again the media historian from the Atlantic article that says, Technologies like the telegraph and like the camera effectively separated messages from the bodies of their senders. Images were distangled from their subjects. Information was distangled from its source. Ghosts were, in a way, everywhere. So this idea of body displacement and the capturing, recording, and use of the human body is something that Lozano Hemmer continues to use through his modern and media-heavy and interactive-heavy installations. To wrap things up for today, we are going to take a deeper look at his piece, The Trace, a telepresence installation that invites two participants in remote sites to share the same telematic space. Using the descriptor from Lozano Hemmer's website, the piece consists of vectors, sounds, and graphics that respond to the movement of the participants. Two interactive stations are needed for the piece. These are interconnected with a normal ISND digital line so that they can be in the same exhibition hall on either side of a city or in different cities. The stations were in the same hall approximately 100 meters away from each other. The main object of the trace is to allow the two remote participants to tele-embody, that is, to have them occupy identical positions in the telematic space to the point where they are inside each other. This is done using real-time audiovisual events that reconstruct the three-dimensional presence of each participant in the space of the other. Each station consists of a dark room with a giant rear projection screen on the ceiling, a side monitor, four robot lamps hanging from the ceiling, and 10 speakers distributed around the room. Upon entering the station, each participant is given a small wireless sensor that monitors the participant's three-dimensional position. The trace transfers the sensor's coordinations between the remote stations so that each sensor controls the audio-visual elements in both stations. So we'll I, try to link a video to of the piece because I think it helps if you can see how the trace is being interacted. Absolutely. So again, this description of the piece, you know, is taken straight from the website. So this description is also overlaid in the video and Lozano Hemmer himself speaks about the piece. So without even using his description, I don't think I could even formulate this in my own words because it is so technical, but it's also interesting because this technology that he is using in, in this piece, as I'll mention a little bit later, is in some ways outdated or different and it has involved, to, it has involved in different ways, um, but I am not well-versed in technological capabilities to necessarily describe that. So we'll definitely link the, the, the video of the installation for you. So Lozano Hemmer explores the use of the illusion of confrontation, contact, and interactivity to create what many spectators described as an uncanny experience. The subject becomes the virtual presence of the participant and highlights not only the consciousness of the subject's own absence, but also documents the reaction to the fact that they are being followed by images, interface, and tracking devices. And the viewers recognize and react to the fact that these devices already anticipate our movements, our desires, and our trajectories. This piece was done in 1995, but even in that short span of time from then to now, we experience these tracings and digital anticipations now more than ever. 
we even make jokes about it now because we are so used to this monetization of our digital actions, such as people on TikTok saying, diamond, diamond, engagement ring, engagement ring into their partner's Mm -hmm. phone. (laughs) But it is eerie or uncanny when I see an ad pop up featuring the shoes, for example, I was talking about with my girlfriend the other day. So ultimately, Lozano Hemmer's work asks about how surveillance systems, global capital, and digital technologies have reconfigured notions of embodiment and public space and of the public itself. But when talking about the work himself, Lozano Hemmer prefers to use the word such as alien memory rather than new media or interactivity. And I think that is important. That word, one, being extremely loaded as a Mexican-Canadian artist, and two, using a more fitting word that correlates to the uncanny a bit more than media. And I also think in terms of alien, what we're talking about here is setting up a physical architectural space that people in different geological areas of the world and crossing Mm -hmm. those boundaries to come into one space uh Mm -hmm. the word alien also uh, emphasizes that reality so and again digital media is so normalized now that we are still discovering all of its capabilities and also discovering how we are being studied and observed as we interact with it so we think also again the use of that word kind of denormalizes technology as well Yeah, Lozano Hemmer does a lot of really fascinating light installations. I think what I love about his work is it is that uncanny way of connecting with a large group of people, even though we really do that on a regular basis, right? Mm -hmm. Like you were saying, Gianna, like we connect with listeners, for example, like we don't know who's listening at what times and we connect with different people on social media platforms, but yet Lozano Hemmer creates this experience that feels both distant and familiar at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So we are going to end today's discussion by actually answering some more listener questions. Sweet. I love it. Coming straight from the cutest art pop tart there ever was, they <laughs> ask Gianna if you had to give up sculpture, what kind of artist would you be? Fantastic question. Um, I feel like it's not fair to say printmaking since I participate. That's in, cheating <laughs> in both. Oh, that's a tricky one for me. It's hard because these days, especially when we're talking about contemporary art, interactive art or body art, process art, all of that is more wrapped up into the media of sculpture. Mm -hmm. Um, But instead of making an actual object, you become the object, therefore you become sculpture. Um, So I also feel like it's not fair of me to say I would be uh, a performance artist. (laughs) I think that's fair. I think you could totally do performance art. Well, and as I've I've talked about before, I'm a person that strongly believes that the aspect of building your sculpture conceptually ties into the idea of performance or process art. Yeah. Um, But I, I have participated or have tried to do interactive works before um, that were all to a certain point unsuccessful. And that's what led me to get into the body of work that I have now. But I think as an artist who's interested in actively playing into protest and feminist iconography, I think body art, performance art is a natural maybe progression for me or next step for me. You know, I never took an oil painting class in college, but I did a lot of oil painting when I was in high school, and I liked it a lot. I just found other fascinations within my BFA program, perhaps. So I took watercolor. Watercolor is so tricky. I don't have the patience for watercolor, I feel like. So if I had to do a 2D route, I would say just probably normal drawing or oil painting. But 
if I can lock in performance art as my answer, <laughs> that is probably what I would say. <laughs> is that your final answer? Final answer. Lock it in. <laughs> and <laughs> so, Bianca, if you had to be an artist and not an art historian, what style or medium would you pick? I think that's pretty easy for me. I would definitely go ceramics. Mm. I love ceramics. I, I, I'm I like decent at it from the little classes that I've been able to take. I actually, pre-COVID when I moved out here, I really wanted to join an, a type of art institute. We do have one locally. I would really like to take a ceramics class and get back to, into that. And I was hoping it would also help me like make some new friends out here. <laughs> but, um, that's, I, I think ceramics would be the way to go i i love the idea of making plates and bowls and things to cook with and like Mm -hmm. a kitchen artist that's what i want to do yeah i want to open like a like a home goods store with all my ceramic art i feel like that makes so much sense just knowing your love of baking too seems like a natural fit for you yeah lock it in lock it in (laughs) All right, everybody, thank you so much for joining us for our first haunted episode. Please make sure to be safe throughout October and this Halloween season. If you guys are sharing or doing any kind of creative works, any kind of creative makeup for the haunted season, please share that with us. We'd love to see what you guys are doing. Uh, during this time. So as always, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook and you can email us at artpoptalk at gmail.com for any questions you'd like answered. And with that, we will talk to you all on Tuesday. Bye everyone.